I like to look at those uh, favorite book lists. You know, um, I follow a lot of authors and bloggers, and people put together these lists of the favorite books of 2022. And I came across a book on one of the lists. I don't know if you've ever seen those, like, you know, year in review type of things, but I came across this book that I didn't see on any other list. And this author, that I mean, this, this blogger that I really like, um, called it the, uh, the best book he read in 2022. And I was like, I never heard of this book. That's weird, like, the best book. So I looked into it. It had won a bunch of awards. And not only that, there were some reviewers that called it a modern masterpiece, mesmerizing, like nothing you've ever read before. And I was like, okay, hold on a second. What is this? This cannot be true. I'm really intrigued now by this. I know you are too. So even though, get this, this book is written for preteens, especially like the guy wrote it as if he was like a middle school boy. It was an autobiographical uh, memoir written from the perspective of a Persian immigrant preteen boy about his journey from Iran to being in a refugee camp to growing up and like, being in Oklahoma, of all places, because of his family's faith in Christ. And the title of this book was called Everything Sad is Untrue. And the subtitle was A True Story. So all along I'm reading, I'm like, is this a true story? Like, it's so random, and I couldn't put it down, really. And that whole title has been in my mind for many, many weeks now, because to me, that is the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel message that we celebrate every week here at River City, that everything sad is untrue, and that the resurrection is a true story. Therefore, we can hope and we can lean into the truth that one day, through Christ, everything sad will come untrue. So I want to look at this story from John chapter 19 and John chapter 20 today. And we're going to start with the end of John 19 and then move to the exciting truth of what happened in John chapter 20. So before we dig in, let's pray together. Will you pray with me? God, our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you love us unconditionally. You love the world. And so even though we have sinned against you and mankind has turned their backs against you, you provided a plan of salvation. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, to come into this world, to be born as a baby boy, to live a perfect life, and to be arrested, be tried, be condemned, and to die on the cross for our sins, to defeat sin and death. And we thank you, God, that even though we know that this world is still filled with hurts and problems and sicknesses and death and disease and, and everything that seems sad and everything that seems wrong in the world, we know that all of that was not your plan, and we thank you for sending Jesus to this earth. We thank you for sending Jesus to undo the brokenness of the world, to die the death on the cross that we deserved. And God, we thank you that we could gather here together to celebrate Jesus coming back to life again, and we thank you, Lord, that we can be saved by putting our trust in you. And Lord, thank you for leaving us your word that we can hear from you. God, I pray that you would speak to us today, that you would speak to those in other churches who are hearing the good news proclaimed. We pray that you would speak to those who are home watching like AZ still recovering from his accident and others who are homesick. God, we pray that you would be with them. And God, I pray that you would speak to each person gathered here in this room, that we would hear from you, hear from your word, that the Holy Spirit would convict us of our sin. And Lord, I pray that we would put our faith and trust in you, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this morning, and we pray that you would be glorified in this time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. So open your Bibles to chapter 19, 
We left off last week. We talked about Jesus being on the cross, his death on the cross. In verse 30 of chapter 19, it says that Jesus was offered sour wine to drink, and he took a little bit so that he could speak, and then he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And after Jesus' death, John shares what happens right after Jesus' death while he was on the cross and then when he was taken down and buried. And if you're looking at John 19, remember John's entire story. The whole gospel of John was written, it says, that you, in John chapter 20, verse 31, it's like been our theme for the book of John. He says, I have written these things to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that you may have life in his name. I love that John put that mission statement for the whole book of John, which we've been going through for like about the whole year, is that these are all written, all these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and put your faith in him, you will know, you will have eternal life, life in his name. Well, that's also kind of the key point of John's telling the story right now. Um, If you look in verse 35, John 19, he's talking about what they did and getting Jesus off the cross. Verse 35, it says, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. You see, he says the same thing. So the whole book in the whole is wrapped up in the nutshell of this verse 19 too, about this is why I'm telling you things. John's saying, I was there. I saw it happen. And I'm telling you, you can trust me. I'm not lying. And I'm telling you these things so that you will believe. Believe that's really happened. Believe these eyewitnesses' accounts. It's like John can't really contain himself. He's like, man, I'm so excited. This really happened. This is really true. You know, Jesus died on the cross. A lot of people saw it. He died on the cross. It happened on a Friday. It says in verse uh, 31, it happened on a Friday. It was the day before Sabbath. It was the day before Saturday which is the start of their celebration. And because the Jews did not want the Sabbath day, their holy day of the week, to be defiled by having criminals hanging on crosses during their celebration, they requested Pilate to speed up the executions by breaking the legs of the criminals on Friday, thereby speeding up the time it took for them to die. And they wanted the the corpses to be removed from the crosses before sunset, on Friday night, because sunset on Friday night started Saturday, which was their Sabbath, which was the celebration. So apparently the Jewish leaders were were very concerned about certain parts of the law, right? About about not necessarily the the spirit of the law, but more about the letter of the law. In particular, they were concerned about Deuteronomy chapter 21, which verses 22 through 23 says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So once again, in the story of Jesus dying on the cross, we see this great irony taking place, right? The Sabbath was given by God to his people as a sign, as a day of rest, and a sign pointing to the rest that God's people would enjoy ultimately through faith in Jesus Christ. And it was the death of Christ that fulfilled all the requirements for purification for, in order to obtain the rest of God. But the Jews, the Jewish leaders, they got it all mixed up. They got it all backwards. They, they think that, they wrongly think that the corpse of Jesus was going to defile the Sabbath, not realizing that it was Jesus' death that brings us true Sabbath rest. 
So they missed the whole point. They got it backwards. In fact, Paul straightened it out in the reality of the fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 21 when he wrote to the church in Galatia in chapter 3 of Galatians. He said Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So he quoted that same Deuteronomy but said, see, Jesus, he took our curse. We were cursed. We did not keep the law. And Jesus became a curse for us by being hung on a cross or hung on a tree. He fulfilled the law and he removed the curse of the law. Jesus' death brought the truth and the light to what was only a shadow in the law. So next we see the soldiers coming to Jesus' body but finding him already dead. And they pierced his side with a spear. And at once, it says in verse 34, that blood and water came out. They did this to ensure that Jesus was really dead because if he was truly dead, there was no need to go through the effort to break his legs. And this is important for three different reasons. First of all, this adds validity to the facts of the matter. The Roman officials declared that Jesus was, matter of fact, very truly, he was already dead. And this was... No, they, didn't, they weren't tricked. Jesus didn't just faint on the cross. He really did die, and the Roman soldiers proved it by piercing his side with a six-foot spear that they would carry. So they knew what they were doing. They were professionals. They declared that he was dead. It wasn't just John's eyewitness account. It was the Romans, too. It was the Roman soldiers. Secondly, it says that this scene fulfills two prophecies. Psalms 34.20 says that his bones won't be broken. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says, they, look, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So once again, the gospel writer John is, is making his readers and making us see that it is true that scripture was fulfilled. Scripture was fulfilled in the death of Jesus. And thirdly, this is important because John's readers would connect the flow of blood and water from Jesus at the cross as statements that, that they remembered a couple things. They remembered what Jesus had said in his teaching, but also they're there to celebrate the Exodus. That's what the Passover celebration is all about. The Passover celebration was a remembering how they were slaves in Egypt, and then God, through 10 different miracles, brought them out of slavery and made them his people. And while they were wandering around in the wilderness, God provided water from a rock when they were going to die of thirst, sustaining them and giving them life. And in the Exodus story, the blood of a lamb was slain and blood was put on the doorpost and above the door of all the Israelites so that the angel of death would have passed over each house that had the blood on the door. In the same way, Jesus fulfills the role of the Passover lamb. And he was the lamb that was shed for the, so that we could have life. And none of his bones were broken either. That's, again, a fulfillment of prophecy. You remember John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus come on the scene, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's what we see in the death of Jesus. And also the Israelites drank water from the rock in order for Jesus to live. And you know, the Israelites drank water from the rock in order to stay alive when they were in the wilderness. And so we see both things happening here with that, that picture that John shares that when they pierced his side, that blood and water came out. Jesus is the Lamb of God, and his death provides cleansing blood for his people. And Jesus is the rock. 
so that those who drink, like he said to the woman at the well, those who drink of the living water will never thirst again. And it's true. And it's exciting. So before we get to the really good part of the story in John chapter 20, we have to go to the tomb. So ironically, or we should say, you know, in God's providence, according to God's plan, it says that the tomb was placed in a garden in verse 41. So isn't this so appropriate? This is where all of the untruths started. In a garden. It started with a lie from Satan that we shouldn't listen to God's words. That we shouldn't trust that God wants what's best for us. We were sold a pack of lies that we are the gods of our own life, not him. And Adam and Eve disbelieved the words of the Lord. They believed the lies from Satan. And they ate the fruit that led to the fall of humanity. And it was the sin that affected all of humanity and, and ultimately led to Jesus' death and now burial in, in a garden of all places. It started in a garden and Jesus fixed it in a garden, didn't he? And so there are two men mentioned this story that I, I think are worthy of noticing here. Two guys that were members of the, the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, the ruling party. They have Joseph of Arimathea in verse 38. And then you have a man named Nicodemus. Now, each of these men at one point in their lives were interested in what Jesus was saying. Like each of these, they had a relationship with Jesus, but they kind of kept it hidden. Back in John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night to ask him questions about eternal life. And Joseph was a wealthy man who he kept his allegiance to, to Jesus secret until... Um, Till now, but it's because it says in verse 38 that he was secretly uh, a follower of Jesus, but he was afraid of what the Jews would think. He was afraid of what people would say and what people would think, especially his peers, if they found out that he believed that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was the Messiah. But now both have taken a step of boldness, and Joseph goes to Pilate and he asked if he could receive the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus brings a massive amount of spices, about 75 pounds worth, to prepare Jesus' body for burial. And I think both of these guys, they took a risk of being associated with, well, one, with a criminal, and then number two, with the person who was crucified. Remember, a person who was crucified, that was a curse. And, you know, you didn't just haphazardly handle a dead body, but they took care of Jesus' body, and they placed it in a tomb. Okay, that's all of the sad parts. Are you ready to hear how it comes untrue? It's the first day of the week in John chapter 20. The Jewish Sabbath is now over, and it's now Sunday, the first day of the week. You know, and people have asked me sometimes, how do we get three days, right? I remember I had somebody one time, they say, Friday, you die, okay? Saturday, Sunday, that's two. I'm only counting two. How come you keep saying three? Well, we count days different than they count days, right? The way that they counted days is any part of a day was, was a day. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that's three days. Actually, that's how they counted years, too. Because you look in the Old Testament, and you look at how, like, the reign of the kings, and you're like, did they all overlap? No, because, like, any part of a year was counted as a year, and they're counting, and any part of a day was counted as a day. 
And so this is the first day of the week. This is Sunday. And it's early in the morning. And a woman, and probably some other women as well, but we just hear about one woman. doesn't mean there wasn't other women with her. Named Mary makes her way to the garden because she knows where Jesus' body is buried. She knows where it is. And she wants to go see her Jesus. And I say her Jesus because Mary had a special relationship with Jesus. She was from a town of Magdala, which is on the west bank of the Sea of Galilee, which is nowhere near Jerusalem. And in Luke, we are told that she had seven demons in her at one point that Jesus cast out. So her life was radically changed when she met Jesus. And so she was probably traveling with Jesus and his disciples. And we read earlier that at the cross on Friday when he was dying, she was there standing beside Jesus' mother. And so she, I say, she went to see her Jesus because she loved him. And she was probably heartbroken. And I'm sure she spent two days and two nights crying her eyes out because he was now dead. And she probably cried until she couldn't cry anymore, and then she probably cried some more. And so now it's the very first day of the week, and she wants to honor him as well. She wants to honor his body, and so she goes to visit him. You know, I, I, um, I wonder if she thought I could be close to him, too. I... I one of my favorite bloggers lost his son. He says every Sunday afternoon he goes to visit his son's tomb. And he says, I know he's not there because he's a Christian. He's a believer. He's in heaven. But I just feel like I'm close to him when I go to his gravesite. And I wonder if that's how Mary Magdalene was. She just wants to go. She's, she's taking spices, but she's going there. And it's on her mind is going to visit Jesus, who is no longer alive. She knows his spirit is gone, but his body, his lifeless body is there. So when she gets to the tomb, though, something is not right. Something's out of order. That the stone that was blocking the entrance to the cave, to the tomb, is now rolled away. And so right away, she thinks, this is horrible. She's not excited right now. She thinks, what happened? She's probably sad, angry, confused. If somebody messed up your favorite person's grave site, you would be really upset, right? So she's like, what did they do? Somebody must have taken the body. I hope the Romans didn't do it, she's probably thinking, and made a public spectacle of his body. That would be horrible. So she goes and gets her friends, Peter and John, and tells them to come quickly because the, the stone is not there. Somebody took his body or moved it or something. Something happened. And then read with me in, in John chapter 20. And i got to read this because this is the funniest verse in the whole, the whole story here. Because she goes and tells him, verse 3 says, Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Verse 4, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <laughs> so it looks like John was faster than Peter, and he wanted everybody to know it. It's like, what's the point of that little dig there? Like... <laughs> I got there, and I was waiting around, drinking some Gatorade, and Peter, finally, he's huffing and puffing, and he runs up. His face is all wet and sweaty. But you know what? John was too scared to go in. He got to the entrance of the tomb, and he just stands there, right? But of course, Peter gets there, out of breath. He just barges right in, because that's Peter. Now, I might be slow, but I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not scared like you are, John. Put that in there, too. I went in first, and then John comes in after me. 
and they see the linen cloths lying there, and they see the, the face cloth folded up, and instantly they think, okay, this is, this is messed up, right? If somebody stole the body, they wouldn't have unwrapped it, because that's weird. And there would, if there was kind of a struggle, you know, they wouldn't have folded up the linen face cloth and set it aside all nice and pretty. So if there was a grave robber, it doesn't make any sense. But obviously the body is not here, so they're not sure what happened. So look at verse 8. It says, Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first went in. They saw, and it says, They believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. So they go in, they see the empty tomb, and it says that John believed, believed that Jesus had risen from the grave, that the Father had risen Jesus from the grave. So what was sad, what was really sad, had now become untrue. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. The tomb is empty. He is risen indeed. And I don't think John fully got it at the time. It says he believed, but it's, you know, ask yourself, what did he believe? He believed the body wasn't there. That was pretty easy. He saw it with his own eyes, right? I think he believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, but I don't think he had time to process all of the teaching that Jesus had already done. I don't think he had time to process all that through the lens of the resurrection. I don't think he had time to study the scriptures and be like, oh my goodness, Psalms 22, maybe he thought Psalms 22, but some of those other Psalms, Zechariah, like I'm sure he didn't really put all that together at the time, but he did believe. If that's all we believe, I mean, that's the most important thing that we believe as Christians is that Jesus is alive and we are no longer in our sins because he rose from the grave. And that empty tomb is the foundation of all of our beliefs. If he wasn't raised, we're still dead in our sins. But because he is alive, we can rejoice this morning. So John and Peter, they leave, and they leave Mary there. She hasn't yet gone to the tomb. She's still crying, and these guys are insensitive. They just go back to their house. It says in verse 10, they go back to their homes, but Mary stays there. And finally, she stoops to look into the tomb. And what does she see when she looks in there? There's a... (laughs) That's right. (laughs) wait a minute hold on I want to fact check you there for a second she sees two angels in there she sees two angels and where are they placed one at the head and one at the feet now instantly you know what I think of this just hit me this week I think of what was taking place in the temple at this time so once a year on the day of atonement the high priest would go into the room called the Holy of Holies, which was behind the door of the holy place. So like these two rooms, once a year he would go in. And inside the Holy of Holies, there was what was called the tabernacle. So it looked like a chest. And on that chest was where he would sprinkle the blood to make atonement for the people of God. But that chest was called the mercy seat because that's where the presence of God dwelt, was right there on the seat. And on that chest were two angels, two angels that were like carved, beautiful, made out of gold, that were always there, like they were on the mercy seat, and they were pointed towards each other, and their wings came together and almost touched. And Mary looks into the tomb, what does she see? She sees two angels, and she knows they're angels right away. And they are one at the head and one at their feet, because this is the new mercy seat. 
Now we can enter the presence of God. Now it's not just a high priest, but we, even somebody like Mary, who was demon-possessed at one time in her life, God changed her. And now she gets to be the one to go through that curtain. And she gets to be the one to first witness the holy of holies through the blood of Jesus Christ. And she knows that they are angels when she's looking in there. She recognizes this. And, she sa- and she, they say, why, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, they have taken away my Lord, for I do not know where they have laid him. So she turns around, verse 14, and now she sees Jesus standing there. And you know what? She knows that Jesus is not an angel. When we die, we don't become angels. She knew that Jesus wasn't an angel. And there was something changed about him. There was something different about him because she didn't recognize him by looking at him. In fact, she thought he was the gardener. You know, you think of that. The angel she recognized, she knows what Jesus looks like. But when she turns, maybe... We don't know exactly why, but she just thinks it's a worker, right? A guy is standing there. She, he, he doesn't reveal himself to her. And she says, did you move the body? And I'm sure Jesus is like, well, I, uh, technically I did, but not in the way you're thinking of. <laughs> I moved my body when I, you know. So in verse 16 through 18, Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. Mary's sadness turned into joy, and she spreads that joy to everybody now. Because everything sad is now untrue. Psalms 126 says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the story of the gospel. And this is what the resurrection of Jesus means for us today. Sadness turned into joy. In the world that we live in, You will have trouble, but take heart, Jesus has overcome the world. Our sins can be forgiven because Jesus died and rose again. So though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Our weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is a true story. Therefore, we can hope and we can believe and we can trust in him that one day through Christ, everything sad will become untrue. Jesus is alive. He is risen. He is risen indeed.